Can you guys think of any songs that come to mind that change the way that people think and act? I have a couple examples to get us started with. In March of 1991, the country formerly known as Yugoslavia was about to split. The government had been communist since World War II, and the people wanted more freedom and autonomy to rule than they had been given. So what's now the Serbian city of Belgrade, the people were amassing in the streets, and the soldiers were called in with tanks and tear gas to suppress the protests, and the communist government responded by ordering that the radio stations would stop broadcasting any news. They were told that they could only broadcast music to distract the people. The radio stations responded by repeatedly playing Fight the Power by the rap group Public Enemy over and over again. This fueled the crowds who protested and rioted for five days straight. Uh, historians later uh, pointed to that as a significant moment in the eventual democratization of the region. This is a cool one. In June of 1993, a grunge rock band named Soul Asylum released a song titled Runaway Train. The band wanted to do something different with their music video than what other bands were doing with their music videos. Uh, kids, back in those days, there was a channel on TV called MTV, and they would show music videos of the songs. And um, instead of just releasing a, a video of them singing this song with models in the background, uh, the video for the the video for the song Runaway Train included hundreds of pictures of children who had recently run away from their homes. MTV told the band this was a big mistake and they were passing up an opportunity for a lot of exposure uh, and publicity for, for who they were as a band. But they explained that when kids saw their childhood pictures on TV, they might remember the homes and the families that they had run away from. The band's hunch was correct, and the video resulted in 26 runaway children returning home. Isn't that beautiful? And as dynamic as those examples are of songs that brought change, the greatest personal example I can come up with is Holla Back Girl by Gwen Stefani. Now, for the first couple years of our marriage, every time I would write bananas on the grocery list, I would spell it wrong. Is there two N's or three N's or where, how do you do it? Of course, in 2004, this pop song dominated all radio stations and the chorus goes what? B-A-N-A-N-A-S. And I've never spelled bananas incorrectly since. <laughs> the point I'm making is songs have the chance, songs have the power to change the way we think and to change the way that we act. This is the second week in our series of the benefits of worship. And uh, what we're learning today here in Philippians 3 is that worship has the power to transform our theology. Worship has the opportunity to change the key spiritual way that we think and react to problems that we face in our spiritual lives. Uh, if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. It's almost all the way towards the end of the New Testament. As we examine the role that worship plays in counteracting the false superiority and the hollow righteousness that human beings, you and myself, 
uh, often find springing up in our hearts and our minds. Uh, the outline that will follow in the next 15 or 20 minutes is in section one. I just want to very quickly talk about the context and the overview and the problem that's being addressed here in this part of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And then in section two, I just want to wrap up with how Paul explains worship plays a key role in solving the problem that we face here in today's passage. So let's start off with a quick review just so that we kind of understand uh, why this is in the Bible and the problem that it addresses. Uh, so there's a couple places in the New Testament uh, that uh, remind us uh, that Paul was planting many churches all the way throughout uh, the Middle East, all the way throughout Europe and Asia uh, uh, after the resurrection. And uh, Philippi uh, was a church uh, that he founded uh, in the city of Philippi, uh, and he visited it several times. He was their founding pastor, but then he traveled to other places as well, uh, and he would send letters to check in on uh, how things were going in that church. And that's what the book of Philippians is. It's a letter from Paul to this young church addressing some of the problems that they were facing. The specific problem that he's addressing uh, here in Philippians 3, it doesn't initially seem like something that would impact us today, but with a little bit of deeper reflection, I think we'll all admit that it's something that we all can struggle with. Listen to what it says here in Philippians 3, verses 2 to 6. And Paul writes this to his beloved church. He says, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the true circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And he goes on to explain, If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the laws, I was a Pharisee. And as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. So let's take a moment to unpack that. There was a particular group of people uh, in that young church, and uh, it was a Gentile church. It was predominantly people who didn't have a Jewish ethnicity, but they, uh, there were Jewish people that were coming into that young church, and they were saying, you know, we respect the things that you're doing, but you don't have the whole picture. There's things that we've done as Jewish people, like rituals, behaviors, and laws, that you are going to have to follow if you want to be truly spiritual. If you want to be accepted and loved by God, you're going to have to do some of these Jewish things that us Jewish people have been doing for a long time. And as I said, that doesn't instantly connect with us as a modern audience, but let's just think about it a moment more deeply, and let me ask you guys, if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, at some time in your past, you've understood this wonderful truth that God will love and accept us, not because of what we do, but because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where our righteousness or our acceptance before God comes from. Our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's where it starts, and we all get off to a great start, but then over time, we start to subtly find value in acceptance before God through other things through behaviors, through laws, 
through things that were not told in the Bible, our value before God comes from. Let me just try to give a couple examples to get us thinking in the right way. When we're student-aged, when we're students, when we're in elementary school, when we're in middle school, when we're in high school, we sometimes look down at those who have worse grades than us. If we get C's, we look down at the kids who get D's. If we get A's, we look down at the kids who get B's and C's. You can remember that. Sometimes we look down at those who have less friends than we do. Sometimes we look down at those that come from a more troubled home life. And when you're 12 or 13 and you ask your parents if you can hang out with somebody, what do they say? Are they good kids or are they bad kids? Right? And we kind of have this dividing line as to who's good and who's bad. And it comes through grades and it comes through popularity and it comes through achievement. Somewhere along the line, we start to believe the lie that we are better than anybody else who's further down the spectrum than we are. We start to believe that subtle lie that God would look at us as good kids and bad kids. But we grow out of it, right? How about when we're in our college and our early career years? What is it that we start to subtly find our value in? Our degree, our education, our marketability, our career path. Our physical desirability. Do you get the attention of the opposite sex? Our talents. Do you get asked to be in bands? Do you get asked to be on sports teams? Do you get asked to uh, be on the sales team? We look at the material things that we've already begun to accumulate. And we think that we just must be a little bit better off than those who have less of those things. And then we get into our 40s and 50s and we maybe at times are a little bit condemning or judgmental of those that have less successful careers or whose marriages and relationships have struggled. Uh, We find pride in the achievement and the potential of our children. And we start to socialize with those who have a similar amount of margin built up, be it time or money or resources. And so these are all ways that we make the same mistake that this group in the book of uh, Philippians are making. When we find our value in our worth in behavior, in accomplishments, in achievement, we're making the same mistake that uh, Paul says the dogs and the evil workers and the mutilators are making. Uh, We are having false confidence in the flesh. We're thinking in a very subtle way that God looks at us with more favor than those that haven't behaved and achieved as we have. Does that make sense? We don't do it over our holding of the Jewish traditions like they were advocating for in this particular scripture, but we do it in other modern ways as well, and it's just spiritually damaging. So what's Paul's emphatic response to these people who are starting to put confidence that they're loved by God because of the things that they have done? Well, he has this beautiful response here in Philippians 3, 7 to 10. I hope it speaks to your heart and corrects your heart like it speaks and corrects to mine. He says this, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss uh, for the sake of Christ. And what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
no longer having a righteousness of my own that comes from obedience to the law, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul's explaining the truth that set him free. He's no longer trying to climb and earn God's favor through obedience and behavior and achievement. He's saying the freedom and the joy of Christianity is that we are loved and accepted by God through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I hope you guys are smiling underneath your masks because that's, that's the life-giving truth that we all have in common. You don't hear this a lot in church, but uh, that ver- uh, at the end of verse 8, when Paul says he counts everything garbage, that's actually in the original Greek, that's a curse word. Paul's using a curse word and he's saying, if you're trying to find love and acceptance in the eyes of God through your behavior and your achievement, that's a curse word. That's the worst thing that he could compare it to. But there's a freeing truth that comes through this transformational thinking that our our righteousness before God and the love and the value that he puts on us, it doesn't come through our achievement or obedience. It comes through our faith that Jesus Christ has taken his righteousness and put it on to us. So we start to wrap up here in section two and then kind of resume our worship and singing about some of these transformational truths. Uh, We see that um, Paul surprised, and I'm sure you guys have heard these verses before, but what was really groundbreaking to me this week is how many times, three different times, Paul says this transformation can happen for us through worship. Right? We started off with those illustrations of how songs can change the way that people think and act. And there's several places here in the book of Philippians where Paul says we can start to think and act more with this recognition that our righteousness comes through Jesus Christ as we worship and recognize that Jesus has made that possible for us. Look really quickly here in Philippians 1.3. I'm sorry, here in Philippians 3.1. It says, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Be thankful that these things are true. That's worship. He says in Philippians 3.3, it is, uh, uh, we boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Again, boast, sing, worship, rejoice that our righteousness is given to us through Christ. And then listen to how Paul kind of concludes this thought here at the end of the letter in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In other words, Paul is reminding the, the, the recipients of this letter that worship is transformative. And if we take this truth that our love and our value before God comes through Jesus Christ giving his righteousness to us, if we're transformed to believe that to be true through worship, we'll no longer look at others with condemnation. We'll no longer falsely think of ourselves as better than others. Because if my goodness comes through Jesus Christ giving his goodness to me, Who am I to look down at somebody else when Jesus Christ could just as equally give his righteousness to that person through faith? The catalog of Christian songs and hymns and worship is filled with God's people growing in understanding and practice of this truth through worshiping. 
Think about uh, probably the greatest hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. And it says this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. What is that grace? It means that we don't deserve the love of God. It comes through grace. It comes through God's undeserved favor. That's what's so amazing and transformative about grace. It's the bestowed righteousness of Christ coming onto us, not anything that we've earned or deserved. There's a great song from uh, the Hillsong Collective called uh, Christ Alone, Cornerstone. One of the verses goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? My hope that God looks upon me with favor is not built on my church attendance or how well I can sing or how well I can preach or how I parent my kids or love my wife, though those are all important things. My hope is built on Jesus' blood and righteousness because then that's bestowed upon me as a believer through faith. How about one more? Um, There's another song. Uh, It seems like it's a really old one, but it was only written in 2001, and it's a, 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 a very popular hymn called In Christ Alone. It says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, Sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful line to think and to sing and to memorize? Sin's curse has lost its grip on me, but sin's curse has not lost its grip on me because I've been a Christian for 11 years or 18 years or went to a Christian college or because my adult kids go to church. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I can grow in my ability to recognize that and live that out through remembering that in worship. Um, Did I use the restaurant illustration yet? I think I forgot to. All right, let me close with this. Um, About a year or so ago, my wife and I got invited to meet some friends uh, at their restaurant. It's called The Mint Maker. It's in Madison, and it's a super hip place. Uh, It's the kind of place where you really only get a table if you're young and, like, super hip or old and rich. And, uh, like, Thea and I are kind of in the middle. We're not any of those things, really. So uh, we go in there, and we just see right away that, you know, everybody who's eating is just, like, super hip. Like, you've seen them walking around, you know, you've seen them walking around Big Sky, like, flannel shirt, yoga pants, fedora, and you're just like, man, that... That person's like super cool and I'm not. And uh, we go up and we're trying to get a table and you know they're just not really paying much attention to us. They're not taking us very seriously. We've got, you know, I'm trying my best to look cool and I got three kids that are touching everything and bugging people. We got a fourth kid in a, in a baby carrier car seat and I'm just, it occurs to me, man, I, we're going to be here three hours and they're never going to actually seat us. And then my wife goes up to the uh, maitre d' or, you know, the hostess and she's like, oh, I forgot to tell you, uh, we're here to meet my friend, 
Maggie. Maggie and Sean are the owners of the restaurant. Maggie is her best friend from college. As soon as they realized we were there to meet with the owners, they went off and they immediately cleared their absolute best <laughs> booth. And, uh, and we had a great brunch and we just sat there as long as we wanted, right? But here's the, here's the point, like how did we get that table? It wasn't on our own merit. It wasn't because how we looked. It wasn't because of anything that we did. It was imputed to us through a relationship. We got that table because my wife was best friends with the owner and the financier or whatever you call it of the restaurant. And as soon as they understood that relationship, we, we, we were placed and brought where we wanted to be. And what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3 is that our value and our righteousness and our ability to get before God, it's not based on our merit. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on our behavior or our obedience. It's through our relationship with Christ and his righteousness that's imputed upon us. Let's think about that as we wrap up uh, with a final song or two this afternoon.